Hey, welcome to church today, whether here in person in Carrollton or wherever you're joining and worshiping with us from online. We're so thankful to have these moments to share together. And now we open up God's word. Um, here at Bentry, our mission is to experience and share the love of Jesus. And we do it in moments like this by worshiping together. We do it in moments like in small groups where we are known by one another and we get to make a difference. And we thank you for being a church that does all three of those things. A few weeks ago, uh, Stacey and I got to do our like once a year trip to, we just went to Asheville, North Carolina this time of the year. It was so beautiful, the mountain range and this quaint nature of this town. We just loved it. And prior to us going there, a friend of ours, actually Paula and a few others from on staff said, hey, if you're going to go, you want to see the Biltmore House. I don't know if you've ever seen it. How many of you have seen the Biltmore? Uh, yeah, a lot of you. I didn't know anything about the Biltmore. And so I was like, okay, well, we're here in Asheville, so might as well see the Biltmore house. So it's, it, you know, it's obviously not a house anybody lives in, but it's over, open for tours. So we decided to check it out. Here's the picture of the Biltmore house we saw. Uh, beautifully lit up at night. Now, the story of this house is that it was built by George Washington Vanderbilt between 1889 and 1895. The Vanderbilts, at one time, they were, some say, the richest, the most wealthy family, perhaps, in the world. And George had received an inheritance, a pretty good size, from his father and grandfather, and uh, he built this mansion. Uh, this is the largest privately owned house in the country. It is over 178,000 square feet with 250 rooms. Yeah, try cleaning that. It's quite uh, massive. Uh, obviously, the Vanderbilts don't live there anymore, but they've opened it for tours. So it was pretty, pretty special to see it. Uh, now, as we went in there, uh, you can take this 107-step spiraling staircase all the way to the fourth floor. And we got off the second floor, uh, and it was beautiful. There was this long hallway. You go down with portraits and fireplaces, and, and that's where a lot of the family members had their bedrooms. And one of the bedrooms was called Louis Fifteen. Louis XV, it was this room right here. It was named after King Louis XV, uh, the French king. It was probably the most grand guest suite or the family suite in the house. Uh, as you go into this room, you'll see Rococo design elements and, and rounded forms and C-shaped uh, curves, bright, clear colors set off by white and gold. And then you open the windows, and it's the most beautiful, spectacular view of the gardens and the terrace. And the balcony overlooks the esplanade. Now, the reason why this is a special room is because it was in this room that the Vanderbilt children were born. Uh, George and Edith Vanderbilt, they had one daughter, one child, Cornelia, in 1900. And this was the room she was born in. And Cornelia, she gave birth to both of her sons, in this room. Reason being, it's a room with the amazing view. You can see everything from there. It's tucked away. It's incredibly convenient. It's a staple of luxury and prominence and all of that. And so you could spend extended, uninterrupted time with a newborn in this room. I couldn't help but stand in that room in the middle of Christmas. And think about this house built by and for one of the wealthiest families in the world and not contrast that with the room, with the place where Jesus was born. 
If anyone deserved to be born in the Biltmore house, it was Jesus. If any parent deserved such a pristine, colorful, beautiful, architectural place with incredible view and design, it was Mary and Joseph because they were not just giving birth to royalty, they were giving birth to God in flesh. But this large, privately owned house, all the views and architecture, is as far as you could get away from the place and condition into which Jesus, the Son of God, was born. Jesus chose Bethlehem over the Biltmore. He chose a manger over majesty. From heaven's throne to earth below, from riches, as Joe said, to poverty. He chose obscurity over luxury. He chose a borrowed stable over a private mansion. Jesus came into a broken world through broken people in the most unlikeliest of ways. And yet in so doing, he was fulfilling every single one of the prophecies and promises about his coming. Over 300 prophecies and promises written about the coming of Jesus, he fulfilled every single one of them. Last week, we began to look at one of those prophecies written 700 years before the coming of Jesus by a prophet named Micah. And Micah says where Jesus will be born, that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. But then Micah also says that his origin is from ancient times, from antiquity. Because though Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he did not begin in Bethlehem. He has always been. There's never been a time in which Jesus the Christ was not. He has been the I am of the past, the I am of the present, and he will be the I am of the future. Not only we said that not only is Jesus promised in the Old Testament, he is very much present in the Old Testament. You've heard of the ghost of Christmas past, but what's better than the ghost of the Christmas past is the presence and power and promise of Jesus in the Christmas past. Today, we're going to fast forward 700 years and look at a scene that takes place shortly after the birth of Jesus. So we're going to jump into the Christmas narrative, particularly one that's written in Matthew chapter 2. Most likely, if you've been attending church for a while or you've been around the Christmas story, you've heard of this story. And it is in Matthew 2 that Matthew resurfaces, brings back up the 700-year-old prophecy of Micah regarding where Jesus would be born. And particularly in Matthew 2, I want us to look at three responses to the coming of Jesus at the first Christmas. Three ways that people responded to Jesus entering the story of humanity at the first Christmas. Because I think our responses, whatever they may be, is often found in those first three responses. Matthew 2 records it like this, saying, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Matthew records by letting us know about this group of men called the wise men who come to visit Jesus. Now, notice when the wise men showed up after the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. 
Now I know I may be at risk of blowing up your nativity scene. <laughs> I gotta break it to you though. Jesus was not at the nativity scene. He actually didn't, they actually, I'm sorry, Jesus wasn't at the nativity scene. The wise men, I'm glad I corrected myself. The wise men were not at the nativity scene. They didn't make it to the manger. Matthew says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, now they're searching for Jesus. Now they saw the star at the moment Jesus entered the story in Bethlehem and they've come from far away searching for Jesus. And actually as you read the story in Matthew 2, we read that by the time the wise men show up and meet Jesus, Jesus is not living in a manger, he's living in a house. And he's not an infant, he is a child. He's a toddler. So it's been one to two years since the birth of Jesus by the time the wise men meet him. Now listen to me carefully. Don't go home and tear up your great-grandmother's nativity scene that's been passed down for generations. We can all have a little grace this Christmas season. We can nudge on the character. We can fudge on the characters a little bit. It's okay. But, but, but do this. Just keep the wise men at the end of the mantle at the edge, and then just bring them closer as you get past Christmas. We'll, we'll get a little closer that way. Another assumption we make is that there are only what? How many wise men? We often think there's only three, but that actually is never told to us. We know they brought three gifts, but we're never told if there were only three. There could have been two, there could have been three, there could have been 30 for all we know. And I think there's an entourage of wise men who are coming to look for Jesus. So who are these people? Where do they come from? What are they all about? The wise men would have come from probably Persia or Babylon. They originated maybe 6th, 7th century BC. This was a group of people in the whole world considered to be the most intellectual, sophisticated, educated, and elite. The wise men were so well learned in math and science, astronomy, astrology, history, the occult. They were the most sought after people in the world. The wise men are translated magi, which literally means magicians. They have some kind of magic. They have insight. They've got revelation even from all of their knowing. In fact, it's said that there couldn't be a king in Persia unless the wise men approved and crowned them. They were even called king makers. King makers. You couldn't have a king in Persia unless the wise men trained, approved, and crowned a king. We actually meet the wise men early on in Daniel, when Daniel was in Babylon. And we read about the wise men being the highest ranking officials in Babylon. And because of Daniel's supernatural ability to interpret dreams, Daniel is given charge of the wise men. Here's what Daniel 2 records, verse 48. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel is placed in a managerial responsibility over the wise men. So here's my speculation. Here's what I think happened. Daniel received so many insights and revelation about the coming of Jesus, both his first coming and his second coming. 
Christmas phase one and Christmas phase two. And Daniel began to write them down. And if you want to read one of the most particular prophecies about the first coming of Jesus, particularly the year that Jesus would enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, you read Daniel 9, and it's so specific, and Jesus fulfills it. I'm imagining as Daniel is receiving insight and revelation from Almighty God, that he passed that on to the wise men he was in charge of, to those that he spent so much time with, perhaps he even left behind a scroll for them to read. Even after Babylon and, and Persia came over and took over Babylon, the group of wise men were elevated to the role of priesthood. And we know that Jews stayed behind in Babylon, a lot of them. And I'm thinking perhaps the wise men were familiar with prophecies like in Numbers 24, where the Messiah is referred to as a star rising out of Jacob. So perhaps for hundreds of years, maybe 500 some years, this group of the wise men, generation after generation, these kingmakers are looking towards the time where they would meet the king, the ultimate king. They're looking for the star. They're looking for a sign. They're looking for the words of Daniel and other prophets to be fulfilled. And then one day they spot a star rising out of Jacob, coming from Jerusalem, around that vicinity. They spot a star, and they realize that this is the moment. Somehow the Holy Spirit, based on what they saw, confirmed in their heart, gave them faith to believe this is a monumental birth you've been waiting for. And they go off on a journey. Most likely, if they're from Babylon, this is a 900-mile journey on foot. No Uber, no taxi, no flight. 900 miles on foot. Now, imagine how this conversation went at home. Honey, we've seen a star, and we got to go. We don't know how long it'll take us to get there, but we know the general direction of where we're going. <laughs> we don't really know where it is, but we know the general direction. We don't really know who we're looking for, but we know he's going to be pretty amazing and special. We don't know when we'll back, how long we'll be gone, but we're going to have to take the most expensive gifts we possess. As much as gold, frankincense, and myrrh that we can carry, and they go off on a journey of at least one to two years. Now, I told you earlier that they met Jesus as a toddler. Now, if these were wise women instead of wise men, they would have made it on time, I think. They would have made it to the nativity, would have been caring for Jesus. Uh, they would have brought more appropriate gifts like diapers and wipes and baby food, not gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's why you don't send us guys to like Target to get a baby gift. We're gonna walk out of there with AirPods and a PlayStation. But eventually, they see the star, they set out, the star has risen. They get around to Jerusalem because they know, okay, this birth of a child, he's the king of the Jews. So if anyone's going to know about his whereabouts, it's going to be the Jews. And there are a lot of Jews in Jerusalem. There are priests in Jerusalem. There are rabbis, more than you can count. Priests, religious leaders who had the scroll of Daniel and all the other prophets. So if anyone's going to know specifically where this king of the Jews will be, it's going to be those in Jerusalem. And they're thinking, by now, they've already received Jesus as the Messiah. They've already met the baby. They've already met this new king. We just got to get to Jerusalem, ask for directions, and we'll be taken immediately to where this new king of the Jews is. But to their surprise, no one has a clue. 
These are wise men from the east, which by the way, the east represented the enemies of God. They're as outsiders as you can get. So these outsiders get to Jerusalem, meet the insiders who have God's word, who have all the religious traditions and festivals, and they have no clue. The outsiders get a glimpse of the monumental moment of history that's taking place, and the insiders have no clue. So they begin to ask around, have you met him? Do you know him? Notice how Matthew phrases it in verse 2 of chapter 2. So they get to Jerusalem, these men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. They're not asking if he's born, they're asking where he is. Notice the word saying. In the Greek, that's a present participle, which emphasizes a continual action. And it's this idea that suggests the wise men went around town finding anyone they could, asking anyone they could, continually asking and saying, have you met him? Show us where he is. We saw the star. We've come to find this newborn king of the Jews. They asked any and everyone they could find, continually asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Notice they're not asking, where is he who will become king of the Jews? Where is he who is Born king of the Jews. Jesus in his born identity was already king. He didn't merely become king. He didn't work for it. He didn't run a campaign. He didn't achieve his kingship. He didn't earn it. He didn't have to usurp someone else's power. No, no, no. He was born a king. He was a king in the manger, king as a servant, king as a carpenter. He was king on the cross. And he proved he was king by rising from the grave. Jesus, even as a little child, he's born king. So they're asking, have you seen him? Have you met him? We just want to worship him. We saw the star. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? No one knows. But soon their inquiry gets the attention of Herod the king. King Herod, he was named by Caesar Augustus as king of the Jews. So he hears a rumor he hears a rumbling around Jerusalem as his entourage of kingmakers come into Jerusalem asking about a new king, and he is personally invested in the answer of who this is. So notice what happens next, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Now, I think early on when I would read this text, I kind of thought, that as soon as the wise men made it to Jerusalem, they walked straight into Herod's palace and told Herod, hey, we've seen the new king, the king of the Jews. Just tell us where he is. But I don't think they did that. See, these wise men, they were wise. <laughs> they knew better than to march into Herod's quarters and ask about the new king while he is the king. No, no, no. I don't think they at all went to Herod immediately. I think they went to everyone else they could. They went around town asking everyone else, where is this new king? And that's why it says Herod wasn't told. He heard. He heard indirectly the rumbling, the rumors around town. There are these wise men. There's an entourage from the east. There are these kingmakers asking about a new king. So Herod is disturbed. In fact, deeply disturbed. King Herod was a was actually called Herod the Great because he did some great things. 
He built entire cities. He reconstructed the temple that Jesus walked into. He built the Wailing Wall that still stands today. He was a powerful man. But the only thing that matched his power was his insecurity and fear. Herod was constantly paranoid that somebody was out to get him. Somebody was out to overthrow him. In fact, he got ill one day, and he thought his wife and two sons did it. One of his wives. So what he did was he murdered his favorite wife and two sons. He thought they were out to get him. He was constantly insecure about the power he held. Caesar Augustus said about Herod, I would rather be a pig in Herod's house than a son. Because Herod was half Jewish, and they didn't kill pigs to eat them. He said, I'd rather be a pig than a son because I'm more secure. Herod was an evil murderer. So now, as he hears rumblings in the city about a new king, he is threatened by the news of a new king. And what does he do? He holds on to control. He clenches his fists with power, and he's already committed that no one is going to overtake his throne. He holds on to his power. He has heard the news. Where is this king? And he's now curious himself to find out. So what does he do? Next verse says, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now catch that, all of Jerusalem, not just Herod, but all of Jerusalem. And I think those in Jerusalem were disturbed because they know what happens when Herod is disturbed. Uh, They've seen the wake of dead bodies. They've seen the wake of destruction when Herod isn't happy and they too now are disturbed because their king is not happy. And even besides that, at this time, Jerusalem was incredibly on the edge. They were being overruled by a foreign governor, a foreign ruler, a foreign nation. They have a radical king as their king. And there are these Jewish uprisings that are happening all around Jerusalem, making the city unstable, bringing more attention to Jerusalem from the Roman Empire. And as a result, they know that Rome is going to be more heavy-handed than ever before. And now come these wise men from the east declaring there's a new king. Oh yeah, they're really disturbed, all right? They're really on the edge wondering what is about to go down. Herod is disturbed, all of Jerusalem with him. So what does Herod do? So he assembled all the chief priests, not just some, but all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him. Because this was written by the prophet. And here is the verse we read last week, 700 years before this moment, where Micah records in chapter 5, verse 2, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, which means Ephrathah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus being a ruler and a shepherd. But here in this moment, Herod gets news. There's a new king in town. There's a new king that's been born. So he gathers all the chief priests and the scribes. The chief priests and the scribes were the religious leaders of their day. They're the ones who spent their whole adult life studying the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures, teaching the scriptures. They have been pouring over the Torah, the Old Testament, prophets prophets and writings their whole life. They would be the, the senior pastors and the staff of their day. 
So Herod knows if there is a new king of the Jews that's born, if anyone's going to know the answer to where he's born, it's going to be the chief priests. And the scribes, so he invites them all and he, and he asks them the question, tell me, is there any prophecy that speaks to a new king being born? And they say, oh yeah, there's a lot. Then they have to look at the concordance or Google search. They had already memorized all of this and they just regurgitate, oh yeah, Micah 5 too. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, the smallest of the towns in Judah, because out of Bethlehem would come a ruler and shepherd of Israel. Now Herod knows the location. So what does he do next? Verse 7, then Herod secretly summoned the wise men. I think this is the first meeting of Herod and the wise men. He's heard the rumblings, got the rulers, uh, the rumors. He's met with the chief priests. He knows that this new king is born in Bethlehem, so now he secretly brings all the wise men together. And he asked them the exact time the star appeared. The wise men want to know where this child is born. Herod wants to know when he's born. He's already devising an evil plan to get rid of Jesus. So he's asking about the time he appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, so he gives the piece of information they need in exchange for what he needs. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, now, I'm not going to do this, but if you can, hear the next line in the voice of the Godfather. It'll really make this text come alive for you, okay? <laughs> hear this in that voice. Go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. It's an offer he can't refuse, right? Yeah, there you go. Go and search for this child and bring him back to me or tell me where he is so that I can worship him as well. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. They saw it again. They spotted it again. It had led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Just think about that. Here, Jerusalem is, dist is disturbed and the wise men are overjoyed. They haven't even met Jesus yet. But just seeing the star again, it confirms in them they're on the right path. They're about to encounter the Savior that they've been waiting for. They're overwhelmed with joy. The insiders in Jerusalem are disturbed, but the outsiders from the east are overjoyed. Just like the shepherds were when they heard the news of his arrival. They're overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house. Not a manger, but the house. They saw the child, not an infant, but the child with Mary, his mother. And, and, and then what do they do? They fall to their knees. They worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented with him gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route from another country, that's a long ways away. They go back perhaps 900 miles after seeing Jesus. What a moment. These wise men have been reading the scrolls, perhaps from Daniel, they've been hearing this astronomy, uh, they've been hearing the prophecies, they're looking for the sun, they spot the star, they leave home carrying precious gifts, and now one to two years later, after going to Jerusalem, being directed to go to Bethlehem, they see the star again, they get to the house where Mary and Joseph with this child named Jesus 
is. And they lay eyes on the one that they've been waiting for, the one they left home for, the one that they brought gifts for, and they see this child, and what is their one and only response is to fall on their knees and worship. They fall to their knees and they present the best of the best they have. These precious, expensive gifts, gold, myrrh, frankincense. Perhaps gifts that resemble the nature of this child, his royalty, his sacrifice. They give it all to him. Gifts that were so expensive and precious. But they meet the child and they give it to him. They don't see Jesus saying parables. They're not seeing Jesus do a miracle. They're not seeing Jesus on a cross. They're not even seeing Jesus risen. They see him as a child and are already convinced he is worthy of everything we've got. He's worthy of it all. So they fall to their knees and worship the Christ. I'm going to close today with just comparing and contrasting three responses from three groups of people to the first Christmas. I wonder which of these are our responses to Jesus. The first is Herod. And Herod's pretty obvious. Herod responds with personal fear. The wise men respond with faith, but Herod responds with fear. Herod is afraid that his power is going to be loosened, his control will be lessened, so he embraces faith. The wise men are seeking a savior, while Herod is trying to be the savior, because you can't look for a savior and try to be the savior. At the same time, the wise men see in Jesus the Messiah, the Savior, but Herod sees a rival. Herod is so consumed with himself, his power, his dominion, his kingdom, that he misses the king. The wise men are in search of truth while Herod is suppressing truth. The wise men are seeking to worship while Herod is seeking to destroy all because he saw Jesus and the way of Jesus to be a threat to his way, his empire, his agenda. And as you read the following verses, Herod will murder little boys under the age of two. Because anytime any person is driven by fear, the need to control, the need to possess, it always leads to some form of destruction. People lying in the wake of your obsession, our obsession of our own kingdoms. Now, I, I know you're thinking, well, whew, I'm glad I'm not as bad as Herod, and I hope you're not. <laughs> I think you're probably right. You're not as bad as Herod. But isn't there some parts of us, maybe in a season, maybe on a day, maybe for a while, where we are far more interested in our own kingdom than the kingdom of Jesus? In fact, I would even venture to say that there's a little Herod in all of us. A little Herod that clings to power and control when we're uncomfortable. Perhaps we see God doing something new and we're thinking, no, 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 surely it can't be that. So we're gripping our fists tighter. Little Herod in us that may refuse the way of Jesus because we would rather have it our way, holding on to power and control. Perhaps as you're making goals for 2023, 
Are the goals and the resolutions you're writing up, are they about your kingdom or King Jesus? Is it about laying our life down for the cause of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus, seeking him, pursuing him, wanting nothing but him? Or is it about promoting self, promoting our way, wanting to make us look good, promoting our wealth and our power and our influence? Or is it about looking to Jesus and his kingdom? Jesus would say like this in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. Herod is marked by personal fear because he sees Jesus to be a rival. There's a second group of people. You have King Herod marked by personal fear, but then you have these religious leaders, the scribes and the chief priests, all of them. And while Herod is marked by personal fear, the religious leaders are marked by personal expectations. They had their own expectation of how the Messiah would come, when he would come, how we would enter the scene of human history. And what they're hearing about in Jesus doesn't line up. So because they had their own expectations, they still missed Jesus. I mean, if anyone would have known the coming of Jesus, where to look for him, what to anticipate, it would have been the chief priests. It would have been the scribes who have spent their whole day, perhaps their whole life, reading the scriptures, studying the scriptures, interpreting the scriptures, teaching the scriptures, and still they missed Jesus. In fact, Jesus would say about them later on in John chapter 5, an indictment on the religious leaders. In verse 39, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. These religious leaders have poured over the scriptures. They have studied and memorized and interpreted all the scriptures, and still they missed the subject of the scriptures they were studying. They missed the whole point. Perhaps they were so captured in their own theology, they missed God. Because it's possible to know about God and still miss him when he shows up. It's possible to have great knowledge and insight and be able to translate Hebrew and Greek and parse all the verbs and still miss when God is on the move. They had their own expectation of what Jesus should be and who he should be, how he should come, and they missed Jesus. You can know all the scriptures, and I hope you do. I hope you learn the scriptures. I hope you love the scriptures. But if the scriptures don't daily lead you to Jesus, you're missing out on life. Jesus says to them, you have poured over the scriptures, but you're still unwilling to come to me. Therefore, you don't have life. It's all about Jesus. These chief priests and scribes, Jesus, Jesus for them came too late, came in not a way they expected. It's like your prayers not being answered in the way that you had hoped, perhaps it took too long, and Jesus didn't meet their expectations, so they missed him. Now, there's something that's mind-boggling about the chief priests and the scribes. It's one thing to, okay, say we missed it, but they're actually confronted right in the face with the coming of Jesus. King Herod calls them, says, hey, these kingmakers, these wise men are here, tell me more about this. If the chief priests and scribes, they know the word, they tell Herod the news of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, and yet, they don't go themselves. 
Like none of them, not even one. All the scribes, all the chief priests gather, but not one of them leave Jerusalem in search of Jesus. I mean, wouldn't you think that there would be at least some curiosity for these religious leaders to at least find out if it's true? But they don't go. I mean, look at this map here. Look how close Jerusalem and Bethlehem are. They're just a hop and a skip over. <laughs> Jerusalem and Bethlehem are right next to each other. It's less than five miles. Less than five miles. Yet none of the chief priests, none of the scribes travel the five miles to go see if it's true. They could have went to Bethlehem, found a baby, because there's not a whole lot of babies being born in Bethlehem, not a whole lot of toddlers. If not, they could have caught a ride with the wise men. They're following a star. They could have pursued truth. But I wonder why they didn't. Maybe they were avoided. Maybe they were afraid of what they would actually find. Maybe they were afraid of what it would cause in them and how it would change them. The five miles from the prophecies being fulfilled, five miles from the dreams being realized, five miles from meeting the long-awaited Messiah, the king of the world, five miles and they don't go. The wise men have traveled 900 miles, but the chief priests and scribes won't go five miles. Those from the east have come hundreds of miles, but they refuse to go five. Why? Because it's never about the distance. It's always been about the heart. It's not about the distance, 900 or five. It's never about the distance. It's always been about the heart. Maybe you're here today feeling so distant, saying, I've never had a relig religious pedigree in my family. Never had a Christian in our family. I don't know God's word. Maybe I don't have a moral compass. I don't know the songs. Uh, it's been a while since my last prayer. None of that matters. No distance can keep you from Jesus. Five or nine hundreds. All that matters is the condition of your heart. Does your heart want him? Do you long for him? And if your heart wants him, nothing can keep you from him. So today, maybe you are five minutes from encountering life in Jesus. Maybe five seconds from beginning eternity with Christ. Would you travel the five miles? Would you let your heart be released to following Jesus wherever he may lead you? Maybe you've got all these expectations that Jesus didn't meet and that has kept you from him. Today I'm inviting you, go the five miles. The chief priests were just five miles from their whole life being forever transformed and they still missed him. Herod is marked by personal fear that leads to destruction. The chief priests and scribes marked by personal expectations still missed him, but then you have the wise men who are marked by personal faith. The Holy Spirit inspiring new, fresh faith in them. Faith that says, all I needed was a sign. I don't have to have it all figured out. I'm going to follow the star. I'm going to follow our heart wherever it leads. We're going, and they do. And they encounter an amazing revelation when they see Jesus Christ. Maybe as you look at this list of people, you're thinking, you know, I'm not like the King Herod. I'm not like the scribes. I'm not like the wise men. Maybe you're more like those troubled in Jerusalem. This Christmas season, you're seeing a lot of disturbance in your heart, maybe in your family, maybe in your marriage, maybe in your personal life. I don't know the cause of those disturbance. 
I don't know if it's financial or social or if it's religious or spiritual or whatever it may be. There was a lot of people disturbed in Jerusalem, and yet it was for those disturbed in Jerusalem that Jesus came for. He came to be peace for them. He came to announce redemption to them and for them. And wherever you are, God is inviting you. Are you afraid? Are you avoidant? Are you searching and curious? Are you disturbed? And wherever you are on the spectrum, he's saying, come to me. I've come to be peace for you. Maybe you're thinking, I wish I could just see a star in the sky. <laughs> That'd be a clue. And yes, creation to speak. But let me tell you, something better than a star has come. We don't look for a physical star to put our gaze on. We look at the cross. And we look at an empty grave because it was at the cross on Calvary. It was in the empty grave that Jesus gave us his final and full declaration that he loves you, he came for you, and he has conquered every distance so that you and I would never be apart from him. We don't need a star. We have a cross and an empty grave. And something better than a star in the sky has been given. We don't, have a sky, we don't have a star in the sky. We got his spirit in our heart. Creation speaks of him from the outside, but his spirit speaks of him from the inside. Today, his spirit is calling you, wooing you, convincing you. He is life. He forgives. He redeems. He restores. Something better than a star has come. Jesus himself has come. I think about all the ways that the wise men encounter the voice of God from perhaps ancient scrolls to the star, to Herod, to the chief priests, all guiding them in their journey. But yet, it was when they met Jesus, the greatest voice, the greatest revelation, that they felt down and worshiped. I wonder what all the voices in your life have been that have been leading you to this moment, maybe people, maybe the scriptures, maybe creation, but today, Jesus is calling you. He invites you to himself. Because he came for you, will you come to him? Let's pray. Father, however we respond today, may your spirit cultivate and inspire personal faith. Whether we're afraid like Herod, avoidant like the chief priest, or searching like the wise men, whether we're religious like the chief priest, intellectually elite like the wise men, or political, whatever it is, you came for everybody. Or we're those in the town who may not know what's going on, but we hear something, we're curious, we're wondering. Or even disturbed. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, you come for us today. We come to you. Holy Spirit, would you cause faith to rise in somebody today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today I want to invite you, I just feel in my heart, there may be somebody online or in this room that you hear the words of Jesus, you hear the voice of Christ inviting you. Would you come to him? Right after the service, there's a prayer room right across the water feature. The glass doors lead you into a prayer room. And if you're here and you need to make a decision to follow Jesus, you say, man, I've been afraid, I've been avoidant. But today I want to respond with faith because Jesus has come. We invite you to that prayer room be people who can answer questions for you, pray with you. Whatever journey has been, we invite you to take the next step. This afternoon, you'll be getting an email from me just celebrating all the amazing things this year that God has done. And also an invitation to continue to worship in generosity. So I pray that you take a look at that. We love you. May God bless you. Have a great rest of the week.